1 Samuel chapter 29 is where we are this evening in our journey through the Scriptures. And uh, if you're here with us this evening without a Bible, um, there's some men coming up the aisles right now. And if you just raise your hand up and get their attention, excuse me, in some way, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands, cover a little bit of territory on the Sunday nights through the Bible, and you'd be fairly lost for following along without one. So get their attention. Just a reminder also that next Sunday night, um, it actually kind of hits in a nice place. We'll look to finish First Samuel this evening. And then next week is going to be our Christmas program, White Christmas. And um, just it's going to be fabulous. And it'll be the regular <clears throat> service time, 6 o'clock. And looking forward to a great time of celebration of, of this season through what the Lord has put together in the Christmas program this year. When we left off in chapter 28, <clears throat> the Philistines have... In, uh, thrust very, very deeply into uh, Israel territory. Uh, Saul, the king of Israel, has uh, united in, and brought forth uh, the men of Israel to meet this uh, invasion. And so this great battle between the Philistines and the children of Israel is looming. And then we're told in chapter 29, then the Philistines, as we've seen how Saul has prepared for the battle by going to a witch and engaging in a seance in order to get some kind of a mind of the Lord. This is how out of, how unspiritual he is at the moment and uh, a low point even for him spiritually. And so this is how he's preparing for the battle. And uh, God, in his grace, allowed Samuel the prophet to communicate to him that they would indeed meet uh, the Philistines in battle and that they would lose and that both uh, Saul and his sons would be joining um, Samuel in Abraham's bosom or in Hades the, the very next day. The Philistines prepared for the battle in a little different way. And remember, David is with the Philistines now, and uh, ben has uh, <clears throat> been, had a city named Ziklag committed to him for 16 months. He's just thrown off the call of God, left Israeli territory, and uh, feeling that Saul was ultimately going to kill him if he didn't flee into the land of the Philistines. And so he's just been kind of a Philistine in terms of his activities and all, and uh, God knows how to uh, change all of that, and he'll do that in the chapters this evening. And so then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by the fountain which is in Jezreel. And so they're very much in the northern part of Israel, all the way into what we would call the Valley of Armageddon. And so up, way up into the north, uh, the Philistines have invaded. In preparation for the battle, the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men uh, passed in review at the rear of Achish. And so the Philistines, in preparation for the battle, decided to have kind of a military parade. Those of you who are old enough to remember, I do, I'm sure that the Russians still do it, but I don't think it gets quite the airplay that it used to. But when I was a kid and we were concerned about communism and all that, you would, you would see these um, Russian leaders in Red Square by the tomb of Lenin, and they would have 
this uh, show of military strength where all of the representatives of their military would march by all of their weaponry and all. And so it was just a show of strength and uh, of the forces that, that they had. The reason that the Philistines are probably doing this right now is for the leaders of the Philistines, uh, the five lords over the five capital cities of, of the area of, of the Philistines, they probably wanted to assess their strength and the readiness of their troops by watching them go by and review. And then additionally, it never would help, uh, was no hurt to morale for the Philistine soldier to see, wow, look how many of us there are, how well equipped we are. In fact, they were better equipped than the children of Israel. And so it was to kind of encourage their faith before they went out into battle. And so it's a sizable army. We're told that each of these different companies numbered in the hundreds and, and in the thousands. So huge number of people passing by this kind of parade. Uh, place and when they get to the end of this review, there is Achish, who is the leader of the one of the capital cities of the Philistines, Gath, and then he's also got his bodyguard with him, which now includes David plus David's six hundred men. And so this might be the first time the other leaders of the Philistines uh, come to realize that David is even in their land much less that he has his own city and is, is a bodyguard to one of their uh, princes uh, by the name of Achish. And so this is uh, all the things that are going on. Now David is in a real uh, predicament here as he's a part of this. He is now, he and his 600 men, based on his decision, not based on the Lord's leading, not based upon prayer, based upon his own decision-making, where he's going to take his life under his own control and uh, forget about God, forget about his will. I don't want to even know what he's thinking about. I've been running ragged for, you know, ten years under his wisdom, and now I'm just going to take my life into my own hands before I get killed in God's will. And so here he is, and he never dreamed as he would introduce himself among the Philistines to be outside of the reach of King Saul, that the day would ever come that the circumstances would occur one after another, that now he is now a part of the Philistine army and about to go into battle against his own people, the Jews, against the nation that he's been called by God to not, not only be a good Jew and a good Jewish man and good Jewish men don't kill their fellow Jews, but he is called by God to be the next king of this nation. He is in a very difficult place and don't believe that he doesn't realize it. So here he is, he's stuck. If he takes and he, in this invasion, uh, this battle between the Philistines occur against the children of Israel and he is a part of the Philistine forces and he engages himself and his men in a battle against uh, his fellow Jews, unforgivable. An absolute disqualification. They would never forget it. They would never forgive him. He could never set foot in Israel again, much less ever be accepted as their king. There's a lot riding on this. And yet, as he's there in the middle of this military parade, he cannot give any indication of anything other than loyalty toward the Philistines. 
Because if he gives any indication that he wants out of this battle, he wants nothing to do with fighting with the children of Israel, then the Philistines would recognize that his heart is still with the children of Israel, and we might as well begin our attack against the children of Israel by killing this 600 and their future king, and then move on to the big battle. And don't think that they wouldn't have done it. They have thousands and thousands and thousands compared to 600. David is in a terrible, terrible predicament at this point in, in, his, in his life. And there's nothing that he could do about it. If he goes left, it's wrong. If he goes right, it's wrong. The only thing that he can do, and maybe some of you recognize it, is in the position, the pickle that he's gotten himself in the middle of, all he can hope for is that God will do some miracle and get him out of the mess that he has put himself in. He needs some expression of God's grace and deliverance upon his life at this uh, moment in, in time. Don't know if you've ever been there, but if you have, you're feeling all of the emotion of David uh, at the moment in, in his predicament. Well, as the Lord's and, and the, um, the princes of the Philistines then said, what are these Hebrews doing here? So the other four leaders of the Philistines, they immediately protest. What are these Hebrews doing here? It's very interesting, isn't it, that very often the world or pagans know more about where a child of God should or shouldn't be than the child of God knows. If you ever walk into a situation as a Christian... And some pagan, some Philistine, I use the term affectionately, but some unsaved person looks at you from someone from school or someone from work or some family member and says, what in the world are you doing in a place like this? It probably means you shouldn't be there. Because if their convictions are so uh, hit by it, and they're willing to speak up about it, usually it means we've made a terrible decision here. And so they're shocked. What in the world are Hebrews doing in the, matter, in the middle of uh, Philistine uh, business? And, and so that's the question that they pose. Achish comes to David's defense, and he said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David? The servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or these years, actually 16 months, and to this day I have found no fault in him since he has defected to me. He says to those other leaders, listen, your concerns are completely unwarranted. This guy, is, he's, he might as well be a Philistine, as long as I've known him. I mean, he's a Philistine through and through, as far as I can tell by his actions. Well, they weren't going to buy that. And so the princes of the Philistines were angry with Achish. And so they're a little less trusting than him, and rightfully so. And so the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return. This is funny. They call him this fellow. They won't even say his name. Achish says David's name there in verse 3. They won't even say his name. They're not going to give him even any... Um, they're not even going to pay him that much respect to acknowledge that he is a, a person that we're going to even ascribe some, some kind of a label of, of humanity upon him. So it's just an expression of contempt against him. 
And they, and, and they give their reasons for rejecting allowing David to go into battle with them. Is this not... Um, and so they, they said, make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. Do not let him go down with us to battle. And here's reason number one. Lest in the battle he should become our adversary. For with what uh, could he reconcile himself to his master uh, better if not with the heads of these men? In other words, if we go into battle with these with these. Uh, Hebrews, and in the thick of the battle, they turn on us, then we've got an enemy within. And that's more dangerous of a, of a situation than f- knowing where the front lines are and fighting against the, the uh, children of, of Israel. And so they said, no, we don't, we don't trust him. It, it puts us in a place where if they, he defected with the desire of once again gaining uh, favor with Saul. What better thing than to do it here, another victory over the Philistines, and so forget about it. Is this not David, reason number two, of whom they sang, speaking of the Hebrew women, when he returned from battle over and over again after killing thousands and tens of thousands of Philistine soldiers? Is this not the David of whom they sang to one another in dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. There isn't a man in that, in that entire Philistine army that hasn't lost a brother or a nephew or a father or a cousin or a neighbor or a relative to David in battle sometime earlier in their lives. And so they, they remembered the, the song that had been sung by the Jewish women concerning uh, David. And uh, so they, they said, no, we don't want to have uh, him to be in the, in the middle of all of this because of his long, long history of killing Philistines. I mean, you can hardly count on a guy like this knowing that he's ever changed his colors, so to speak, and, and that, that he could be counted on in a, in a battle involving life and death. And so they rejected him. And Achish then called David. Achish feels bad about this now. David's got this guy so deceived. He thinks David's out killing Jews already in Judea. He thinks he's, he's you know, killing uh, peoples that are in the territory of Israel when in fact he's, he's out killing Amalekites and all these other enemies of the children of Israel down in that southern part of, of Israel, the Gaza Strip area and out into that desert area. So he thinks David's a great guy. And so Achish feels bad because now he's got to break the news to David that he can't go into battle with, um, the, uh, uh, with the Philistines against Israel. And Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. You are, you're something, I mean, you're the, just the, the, the greatest. David has got him just totally, uh, deceived. David had a, a characteristic in his life. It's interesting as it relates to leaders and leadership. He had at this point in time in his life, um, and, and I think it was innate, something he was born with in terms of a natural talent. But we never really see him use it ever again. But he had a very distasteful ability to schmooze people. He had the ability to 
um, give the appearance of being one thing while he was something else. He had the ability to work people. I remember one time many years ago, I was talking with another pastor in town and and uh, he wanted me to do something. And uh, I wasn't comfortable with what he wanted me to do. And it affected the church. It affected you. And, uh, and he spoke to me and he said, listen, you're a leader. He said, and, and because you're a leader, you have influence. And he says, every leader has so much influence. It's like change in your pocket. And so he said, you have enough influence to pull this thing off and make this thing happen. What we were kind of in the middle of at the time. And, and I looked at that, and in in it, it wasn't like some hard thing to turn away from. It's not in me. I don't like to manipulate people. But it was, it was alarming to me, but I recognized the, the capacity that any of us have as leaders to do that, to use a position, to use authority, to get our own way, to deceive people, to make something happen, and to have something turn advantageously uh, toward us. And David uses that kind of thing early here, and, and even before he becomes the king, but Wonderfully so, once he becomes the king, we never see him operating that way again. There have been times, I'll confess, as a, as a leader, and I only mention it because we all face it in, on some level or another in our lives as Christians. There are many, many times, in fact, where I can look at a situation and I know I can make that happen. I can work this thing to the end that I want to have happen here. I can get that person. They would do this for me. And when I feel that, I run from it. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want it to characterize my life. I don't want it to characterize the ministry. And so here is that, that something that we can sometimes feel that we can make happen and work and, and deceive and get somebody in our hip pocket and use the situation. David has done that, but thankfully we don't see it in him later in his, his life. And so he, he uh, tells him, listen, you're innocent. Nevertheless, the Lord's don't favor you. It's not my decision, but it's their decision. Therefore, return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And so in saying go in peace, he was basically releasing David from military duty in the Philistine force and probably his commitment to be a bodyguard to Achish. And so David said to Achish, but what have I done? This is a lot of nerve. This is Academy Award stuff here. <laughs> David is so thankful for this turn of events that has gotten his... his what, I was going to use a phrase, but I don't know the origin of it, so I won't. So he, he's in a mess. And God has pulled his carcass out of that mess. And he knows it. But now he's going to play along. I mean, he cannot, he can't believe how good God has been. He can't believe the turn of events. He can't believe that uh, where he couldn't go left or right or front or back without there being consequences that he couldn't overwhelm, that this whole thing has happened outside of his control, and he has gotten out of this pickle that he's put himself in. And yet, he's going to feign, you know, indignation. So he said to Achish, But what have I done? This is chutzpah. And to this day, 
What have you found in your servant as long as I've been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Stop it, David. I mean, that's really laying it on. But he's, so he's got a little bit of an actor in him too. Nakish answered. I mean, he's pulled in by the whole thing. It's really sad. Nakish answered and said to David, I know. He's going to try and comfort David's feigned indignation. I know that you're as good in my sight as an angel of God, except for slaughtering all those villages and junk like that. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. As soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, then depart. Adios, we're parting. You need to go. And so uh, Achish's response. And so David and his men rose early to part in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And so they head straight south, heading to Ziklag. And then the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Uh, they headed straight north now to engage, northeast to engage the children of Israel um, in, uh, in battle. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. It's, they travel about 75 miles, covering about 25 miles a day. So it took them about three days to get there. They come to Ziklag, and Ziklag was their home. How did, that, that town had been given to them by Achish. So all their wives were there, all of their children were there and in, in the city. And when they arrive, you can imagine, all right, God got us out of that too much. Praise the Lord, we get to go home and get a warm bed and our families and back to this city and, and, and the anticipation. And they get then to Ziklag on the third day and they discover that the Amalekites, those, those, don't those people ever go away? That's why God wanted to have them wiped out. That the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and they burned it with fire. And they had taken captive all of the women and those who were born from small to great, all of the children. They did not kill anyone, but they carried them away and went on their way. And so David makes their way, and the men, they come to Ziklag. They discover the city's just been completely burned to the ground. And worse than that, I mean, they've lost their homes, they've lost their possessions, everything that they're not wearing or carrying, they've lost. But worse than that, their families have been taken also captive. They weren't killed because the Amalekites evidently intended to sell them as slaves. It was a lucrative slave business with Egypt in those days. And so they evidently thought, let's not kill them, we can cash them in for, for money. Now, it, this whole thing does give us some insight and and apparently the Amalekites had had word that the Philistines were going to invade Israel and that David and his men were a part of the Philistine force so they thought well while all of the men are gone from the south busy invading Israel then that leaves all this southern territory free for us to go ahead and loot and pillage which is exactly what they did this would have never happened if Saul had been obedient to the Lord in wiping out the Amalekites. The Amal and, and it just shows God's wisdom. The Amalekites were a danger to any people, not just the Jews. A danger to the Philistines, a danger to the Jews, a danger to any people that they came into contact with. 
And so again we see evidence and, and proof for the wisdom of God's decision to say, I want them to be utterly destroyed. Not only for what they've done to the children of Israel in the past, but because through all of these hundreds of years they haven't changed at all. There's still the danger to mankind that, that they've always uh, been. And so Saul should have obeyed the Lord in that. The Lord knows what he's talking about, even when his measures uh, seem you know, too strong sometimes for us. So this is the situation. And so verse 3, David and his men came to the city and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. So they turn the bend or whatever and they see this thing and you've you got to put yourself in, in the picture. And, and everything's smoldering and everything and everybody is gone. And here's the reaction of David and his men. And then David and the people who were with him, those 600 men, they lifted up their voices and they wept until they had no more power to weep. These guys have seen it all. Battle-hardened. They know how to live in caves. They know how to live in the open. They know how to be hunted like a dog. They know how to escape the armies of Saul. And they've just been through. They're just tough, tough, tough guys. And here comes a situation in their life where as all 600 sets of eyes fall on that smoldering city and all of those family members gone, there's no discussion, there's no conversation. To a man, they begin to weep. And they weep until there's no more tears and no more strength to weep. I don't know if you've ever done that in life. If you have, you know what that feels like. Where your body doesn't have any more energy to invest in it. There's no more tears that can come out. That's exactly the place that they found themselves in. To me, one of the most... I, there are a lot of awesome things to witness in life. One of the most awesome things to me to witness in life is to watch a grown man cry. When there is some circumstance in life, in this fallen world, some ziklag, some loss, some of material things, and then family on top of it, and then this crisis and that crisis, all of it compounds together, and I don't care how strong the man is, I don't care what he, where he's been, what he's seen, this thing, finally life rises up in all of its strength, and it finally breaks him. And he begins to weep. And I've been around men when they've wept in this kind of a circumstance. I'll tell you, I always feel like I'm standing on holy ground. And it's real what life can dish out. Someone has said that tears are the blood of the soul. I believe it. If you ever see a human being cry, not just a man, but a woman or children cry because of some difficulty that they're in the middle of. It's good to remember you are watching a soul bleed before your very eyes. 
And these folks, with what they hit in terms of their soul and their spirit and their emotions and their minds, they are bleeding out right on the spot in terms of how this thing is, is hitting them here. And so they begin to weep. And David's loss was personal too. His two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, they'd both been taken and then as if things couldn't get any worse, they did get worse because David was greatly distressed on top of all of it for the people spoke now of stoning him because the soul of the people, these 600 men, was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. Here's these 600 men. They've been loyal to David and, I mean, they've been through thick and thin with David. They've united themselves with David and yet now, in the face of this loss, they not only lose confidence in his leadership ability and in his decision-making, but they blame this entire thing on him. That's the problem with a leader, and it doesn't matter whether it's a leader in a home or leader of a church or leader in, in the world or whatever it might be. David is going to realize now, and the chickens are going to come home to roost here. And what David has to realize here is that his decision-making as a leader doesn't just affect him anymore. When he decides 16 months earlier that he's going to take his life under his own control and do his own thing, and he doesn't care what God's call is on his life and all that kind of stuff, he's not going to pray, pray and all, he's going to do his, his own thing, he's going to essentially backslide. And what David is about to learn right here is that backsliding looks as bad on him as it ever did on Saul. Backsliding doesn't look any better on me just because it's on me than it looks on anybody else. And what David is going to realize here, and he learns it as a leader because God works all things together for good and he makes everything teach us something. He learns here in this whole situation how far-reaching his decision-making is. And that he doesn't, as a leader, not only of 600 men, but ultimately of a nation, he is not free to take his life under his own control, jettison prayer, God, God's will, do whatever he wants. Because if he does that, and he brings what is under him, under his own wisdom, all he's going to produce is casualties. So this is a wake-up call to him. And the men look here and they, they blame him because, David, it was your decision-making to leave Israel and to come into the land of Philistines. We're here because you wanted to do it. And we abandoned and didn't leave any protection or defense for our wives and our children in this home, because, in, in our home city, because you got us mixed up in this thing with the Philistines. And they're letting them have it. That's a good thing he didn't get stoned. We're thankful for that. But sometimes in our lives as Christians, I, you know, when somebody comes to me and they're in a pro, they've got a huge problem going on, I always want to fix it for them. I want to fix it for them. I don't fix it for them. But that's what's in me. I, I, want, I hate to see people in pain. I hate to see people in David's place. I really, really do. I know what it feels like to be in this kind of a, of a position. And yet so often all you can do is just, 
you, you, there's nothing you can say to them. There's nothing that you can do for them in that, that situation. It's a lesson that ha- is, is being learned hard because it needs to be driven deep into their life. And there's just places like that in the Christian life and in our service to the Lord. And so David is just in a real mess here. He's, not, he's lost everything he owns. He's lost his two wives. He's, he's lost his family there over in Moab somewhere. He can't even go back into Israel. He's got a king that's trying to kill him. Now he loses his last friends on earth, the 600 men that have been with him. Where in the world do you turn now when you don't have anybody or anything left? Well, I'll tell you there's a friend that's closer than a brother. And that's the Lord Himself. And so that's why we're told But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. There are times, I don't care who we are as, as Christians, in our own personal Christian lives and in our own service to the Lord, that we will hit places in the course of our walk where no one can give us what we need in this trial, but the Lord Himself. And, that, and that, that's, a, that's a fairly regular thing that can happen sometimes. No friend can encourage us. I mean, all the way up to this time, David has had different people that the Lord has brought along to encourage him in his faith. Abigail, Jonathan, Samuel. Now he hits a place where it's him and no one, and so he turns to the Lord. And there are times I'll tell you, and I know that you're just like me, where I hit situations in my life and I look and I say, I can't even explain it to my wife. How can I get her to understand? She would listen. But, but what could she say to me in this? There's no other pastor on the staff that I can bring it to and get any revelation related to it or anyone else, a friend or anyone else in the body of Christ. There are those things where they hit and the only person we can go to is the Lord. And those are sweet times because the Lord is faithful to meet with us at, at those times. But don't think it's some kind of a, of a weird deal when you hit that place and, 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 you, and you say, this is a situation that no one, no human voice, no wisdom, no encouragement, no instruction that any human being can give me is it will even make a dent in this situation. I must hear from God. And that's where David is. Now he returns to the Lord. And to give you an idea, he's coming back, he's coming back from a 16-month backslide. Not a terrible back. Well, terrible enough. Coming back to the Lord from a 16-month backslide. And the Lord is so gracious to meet with him. You'd think that the Lord would say, well, what's that voice I hear now? Haven't heard that in a little while. You think I'm just going to show up and give you the wisdom that you need just any time you just come here any old time, 16 months? You can, can you hear Barney Fife? Just any old time like that, Andy, and I tell you that, and huh? Huh? I sound like Larry King. Huh? God bless him, I'm being... Silly. But the Lord doesn't. Isn't it amazing when you hit that situation and, and you hit that place where you haven't been what you should be and, and it doesn't have to be 16 months or it doesn't have to be this kind of a thing. 
And you come back to the Lord, and he's waiting for us. And he's waiting to talk to us again, waiting to lead our lives once again. And I'll tell you, his grace makes us love him all the more. I don't like seeing David... I, 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 I don't like seeing David's imperfections on one hand in the Scriptures. I mean, he's a hero to me on a lot of levels. But I'm glad that the Lord puts his imperfections in the account because it gives us hope. And If it was all mountaintops, if it was all one story of a hero after another, after another, after another, I'd just be completely discouraged. think God would have nothing to do with me. But... The passage teaches us the greatness of God's grace. Are you backslidden tonight? How long, how many months, how many weeks, how many years? Then this passage speaks to you. And so David takes and he strengthened himself in the Lord because only God has the strength to give us at a time like that. And then David did something that the men... Around him, hadn't seen him do for 16 months. He called for Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, and he said, Please bring the ephod here to me, which contained the Urim and the Thummim, the means by which God revealed his will. David, at this point in time, in saying this, is saying, I'm back with God. No more my will, no more my decisions. I'm coming back to God. God, I want your wisdom. I want you to lead my life. I want your will for my life. That's all that's, that's all, all that is happening here when he, and he, when he calls for that, the priest to come and discover God's will for him. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David and all of his 600 men could look at him and say, David's back. Drop the stones. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, The Lord did. Well, no, he didn't. You think God talks like that? I don't either. Well, look who decided to talk in the, you know. In his grace, God said, Pursue. That's my will. And then he gives him even more than that. He gives him the guarantee of victory. For you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. And so David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, and where, the, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men for 200 of the 600 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook, the brook uh, uh, Besor. Now, this is an interesting thing that happens here. And, and, and again, it's a beautiful event in David's uh, life. The force of 600 gets divided into two, one group of 400, one group of 200. All 600 of these men had just made a 75-mile journey over three days, fully armed, over very difficult terrain, 25 miles a day. All 600 men here in this passage, they begin the pursuit of the Amalekites. But by the time they go the 12 miles from Ziklag, 
to the brook Besor on top of all of the march and all that they'd done the previous three days and all that day, 200 of the 600 simply do not have strength to go on. They're completely exhausted. The, the Hebrew word that in verse 10 for weary was a word that was related uh, to a word used for a dead carcass. These men are so tired, they are so weak, we would say they are dead tired. They're so tired that, uh, that, that they don't have any energy to even give you an indication of, of life that's, that's still in them. That, that's how tired they were. And so they stayed behind at the brook Besor, not out of a disloyalty uh, to David or the men, uh, not because they were afraid of a fight or they were cowards, wasn't because they were wanted to be idle and just you know do do nothing, but they were just too tired to go on. That was their the fact of the matter. An interesting thing about war. Some of you are veterans. I've never fought in a war, but you know you take other things that are way down from that, like athletics or something. But you take a, in a war deal, ev- not everyone has the same capacities in an army. Not everyone can go as far. Not everyone is as mentally tough as the next person, as physically tough as the next person. And these 200 people, they just drop out here. They can't go where the 400 can go. But they can stay behind and then guard the stuff that the 400 men are carrying with them and, and guard that stuff so that they are free to move more swiftly as a force to take on the Amalekites. So they're not looking to get out of something. That's just their reality here. And, and so they, they stay by the stuff, watch the, the things that the men were carrying but were unnecessary for battle to give them the freedom to move uh, a little bit more uh, quickly. So... This is the situation, the division that occurs uh, among them at this uh, time. Well, David's got a problem. And the problem that David has is that God has told him, Go, shall I pursue the Amalekites? Yes, pursue the Amalekites. And not only pursue them, but go ahead and and, uh, defeat them. Go ahead and whoop them. Well, the problem that David has is he doesn't know where they are. That's a very, very large desert area down in, in southern Israel. There are no street signs. There are no maps. Uh, there's no GPS. He doesn't have any idea. He's been given this promise of victory, but he has no idea where the Amalekites are and how to find them. And God, and this whole thing is a God thing to me, because God is going to set up a way for David to discover where the Amalekites are, but it's going to require him to show some real character in his life. It's going to require him to care as much about a slave who's been left to die in the desert and his well-being as he cares about his own two wives and the men care about their wives and their children. And it was through that kind of concern for another human being that God is going to reveal to David where the Amalekites are. If David didn't have that kind of concern, he might still be wandering out in the desert uh, even today. So, 
Then as they're searching around, they found an Egyptian in the field. And they brought him to David. We're going to see in just a moment that he was in a place where he'd been out, uh, cast off as sick by his master. He's been out in the wilderness for three days and three nights. He, he was so sick that the master figured he's going to die. I got plenty of slaves. We just took a bunch of women and children from Ziklag and these other cities. And so I, let, there's no sense trying to nurse this guy as far along as he's gone in his illness. We'll just throw him out in, into the desert. So he's been, he, he went into the desert sick and ready to die. He's been out there three days and three nights. No food, no water, any of that. And, and so this is the condition that they find him in. They brought him to David. And, and they gave him bread, and he ate. And they let him drink water. And then, it's nice, they had some desserts on him. They gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. That was dessert. That was a Twinkie in those days. That was something to sweet, sweet. And so they're, they're watching, they're trying to resuscitate him. At this moment in time, David has no idea that this man is, is, is the answer to his problem for finding the Amalekites. All he knows, and it's, a, it's remarkable, you look at these men, they're just tough guys. Oh, they've got our wives, they've got our children, who cares about a dumb Egyptian slave? Leave them there, let's go. But they don't. They stop the whole thing with their families in danger, and they say, we've got a guy we've got to take care of in the same way that we would wish someone would do for us. It's the story of the Good Samaritan here in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament. And so when he had eaten, his strength came back to him. Those fig bars, that'll do it. Fig Newtons, whoo! There's more sugar in Fig Newtons than figs. That's why I like them so much. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. An Amalekite, you say. Did you say Amalekite? Yes, I said Amalekite. Oh, okay, this is interesting. And my master left me behind three, because three days ago I fell sick. Gives you an idea of what the Amalekites thought of human life. And we made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Did you say Ziklag? Did you burn Ziklag with fire? Yes, we burned Ziklag with fire. Those Amalekites, those are the ones you're traveling with? David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? And he said, yeah, I'll do it under one condition. Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master. I'll take you to this troop. I'll give you the intelligence that you need. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So they're just partying. They're drunk and they're dancing and doing all kinds of stuff because it never entered their minds that David and his men would ever be dismissed from the Philistine army and return to that area of, of, of the land to discover what they had done so quickly. So they are completely oblivious to um, what is, is about to come upon them. And so then we're told 
Okay, 17. Then David attacked them from twilight. Twilight can mean dusk at the end of the day, sunset. can also mean twilight, the sun rising. And so it probably means dawn. They, he probably gave his men, they rested, they got to sleep for, for the night. Uh, saw these guys are just drunk, they're not going to do any real damage. So they attacked them from dawn until evening the next day. So it catches them while they're all uh, hung over and messed up and tired and everything. Uh, not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. The only thing that 400 of them could do, capable of in the condition they were in, was fleeing, and so they did. And so David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Thank you, Lord. You know, he's got to be saying, and David took all the flocks and the herds that they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's uh, spoil. And so they not only did they re- get all of their spoil back that had been stolen from them, but also what the Amalekites had stolen from all of these other peoples. Now David came to the 200 men. They returned back to the brook Besor, and uh, who'd been so weary that they couldn't follow David, whom they had made to stay at the brook Besor. And, and it's really a beautiful scene. So these 200 men, when they see David and the, and the other 400 coming, they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. I mean, they just got to be celebrating. Praise the Lord. Look at what's happened. It's amazing. Here's our wives and our children, and this is better than we could have ever dreamed. And then notice David. When they came out to greet him, David came near the people, and he greeted them. Doesn't lay any trip on him. Listen, you 200, I mean, you guys, you weaklings and this and you couldn't and all. Doesn't do any of that. Comes, how you feeling? You feeling stronger? God's done a great thing for us. And he's a real people person and a real, had real concern for people and understanding of people's limitations. Then all the wicked and worthless men, we don't know how many of them were. It just takes about two in a group of about 600 to mess the whole thing up. Of those who went with David, they answered and they said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered. They didn't fight in the battle. They don't get any of the spoil. No loot. Except for every man's wife and children. We'll give them their wives and their kids. That's it. That they may take their wives and their kids and depart. Get out. Now, this is interesting. So they, they come in, and they really spoil a beautiful scene here. They come along, and they just say, well, we did all the fighting. We did all the hard work. Our life was in danger. These people don't deserve anything. Let them just have their wife and their children and, and leave. And, the, and, and what they're doing is they're publicly humiliating these 200. These 200 will be loyal to David for the rest of his reign. And what's the response of the 200? No response. Complete silence. Here they, I mean, they are being shamed, publicly shamed, in front of their wife, in front of their children, for legitimate physical limitations in their life. They already feel bad enough, and then this whole thing gets put on them. 
They can't break the silence. They can't demand anything more than what's being offered to them in, in this, this thing here. But David, he breaks the silence. And he said, my brethren, and you notice that word brethren, that's a family word. And he reminds them that they're a family. And families are made up of weak people and they're made up of strong people. My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. He recognized immediately that these men, these 400, are treating this 200 in this way because they viewed the victory as coming from their hands and not coming from the Lord. And David's going to remind them here that what you have, gentlemen, is a spoil you have because God, the strong one, decided to share His spoil with you. And now when you're the stronger among the weak and you have a chance to look like God in the situation, you won't do it. Said of Jesus that a bruised reed He will not break. A quenching flax He, he will, a smoking flax He will not quench. It's all just like this, the, the, the weak. I tell you, I, I, when I look at us as a church, when I look at us as a staff, and, and I look at you and how, what's happening here in the Lord, I, I never view and come to a conclusion about the health of this church based upon how the strong are doing or how the strong are being treated, though that's important to me. But supremely, our, the health of this church or any church or any part of the body of Christ is revealed by how we treat the weak, how we, how we support the weak in our, in our midst. And, and, and we have weaknesses in our lives where we need the help of other people. And David steps in and it's beautiful here. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is so, who, uh, but as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They're going to share alike. And so it was from that day forward that he made a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. And that became the rule in Israel that everyone got an equal share from the spoils. Those who stay by the stuff and those who fight on the front lines. Because the people can't fight on the front lines without support people. The body of Christ, when Paul talks, he likens the body, the Christians, to a human body. Not everyone is an eye. Not everyone is a mouth. Not everyone is an ear. But what are you going to do without a nervous system? What are you going to do without a circulatory system? What are you going to do without a stomach? These things that don't get seen. And so what we do together is a, in the body of Christ. What we accomplish. The strong, I don't care how strong any of us are. We could not be what God calls us to be without the rest of the body of Christ doing their thing also. And so it's just a beautiful picture that applies to us even to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends saying, here, um, 
is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord to those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramoth of the south, those who were in uh, Jatir, those who were in Aroer, those who were in Sifmoth, those who were in uh, Eshtemoa, those who were in uh, Rachel, those who were in the cities of the uh, Jeremielites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in, were in Hormah, those who were in uh, Korashan, those who were in uh, uh, Atak, and those who were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. Now some people look at this, and David takes, basically takes a spoil, he's got so much, and he just starts to give it out to fellow Jews in the southern part of Israel known as Judah. Some people look at it and say, well, David's just kind of being a politician. It's a manipulation thing or whatever. And he's just, he knows he's going to be the king and he'll have these guys in his pocket, you know, because they'll be indebted for him. I, ne- I, just, I just am so hesitant to ascribe that kind of a motive to him. These people had probably helped David and his men through the years. In, in, in supporting, not telling on them, and getting whatever kind of things that they would, would, might need. I think the most significant thing that David is doing in sharing this spoil is to communicate to the, southern, the people in southern Israel, I'm back. I may be in Philistine, in, 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 uh, among the Philistines, but my heart is in Israel, and I'm back. And I am taking God's call upon my life to be the king of Israel one day, seriously, once again. And this is a demonstration of it. I'm back, uh, I'm back online with God's plan. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And uh, the men of Israel uh, fled from before the Philistines. And they lay slain on Mount Gilboa. So they were defeated just as Samuel had had declared to, to Saul that they would be. The battle is, I mean, it just, it's all described in one verse. It was just a, a terrible slaughter. And then the Philistines followed hard in the battle after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, uh, Abinadab, and uh, Malkishua, Saul's sons. Uh, Ishbosheth, who was another of Saul's sons, for some reason he was not in the battle. He's going to become uh, king for a little while, not in God's plan, but uh, that's why we see him surface. Not all of them died, but these uh, died. And the battle became fierce against uh, Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And so the Philistines did what you did in the ancient world, even you do today in warfare, and that is they said, forget about the rest of the army, find Saul, let's kill him, let's kill the head. Because if you can kill the leader, you can kill the head, then it will demoralize the rest of the army, make them easier to defeat. And so that's where they go after Saul. And the battle became fierce against Saul. And archers, arrows going all over the places. Archers hit him, uh, plural, so probably multiple arrows embedded in him. And he was severely wounded by the archers. Saul said to his armor bearer, "Um, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Take my life now lest these uncircumcised men, speaking of the Philistines, come and thrust me through and abuse me. So he said, listen, I need you to kill me. Uh, I don't want to kill myself. I want to, I want to die in battle. I want you to kill me because I, I don't want to be alive when the Philistines take my body. 
Because he, he knows these are, these are uncircumcised Philistines. That is, they have no covenant relationship with God. They will torture me if they get a hold of me. So he said, I'd rather die at, at the hands of a friend. His armor bearer wouldn't do it. I mean, the armor bearer has been trained his whole life to protect the king. It's just not in him. He's not going to do it. And so he wouldn't do it because he was greatly afraid. So Saul takes a sword, puts the hilt of it there on the ground, and, and uh, puts it up against his chest, and then he fell on uh, the, the sword in an attempt to take his life. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. He committed suicide. And so Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and his men died together that same day. It would appear, as we get next time in the first chapter of Second Samuel, it would appear that even with Saul falling on his uh, sword in an attempt to kill himself, that life remained in him. And ultimately he is going to ask an Amalekite to take and, and uh, well, I'll just tell you the story. So he, he, is he, his armor bearer's dead. He's got arrows in him. He's fallen on his own sword. An Amalekite comes on the scene and discovers him in this condition. And David said to the Amalekite, Hey, why, I need you to kill me and put me out of my minis- misery because my life is still in me. There's anything he did, he couldn't die. And the Amalekite takes the report to David and said, He asked this of me, and so I killed him. It's beautiful imagery. Saul was killed by an Amalekite. The very people he was called to utterly destroy. And the Amalekites are an amazing picture of sin and of the flesh in the Scriptures. And how if we do not mortify the deeds of the flesh, if we allow to live in our lives, the sins that God has called us to kill in our lives, those sins will come back and they will kill us. We will either kill sin and be ruthless with sin, or sin will be ruthless with us. It's a tough world. It's a dangerous world. God knows what He's talking about when He says, Thou shalt and thou shalt not. And Saul didn't take it seriously, and he ends up killed by an Amalekite and ultimately becomes a trophy uh, of the Philistines as a result. Well, we'll get to that in, in just another hour. I'm just kidding. I know what time it is. And then some of the men of Israel who are on the other side of the valley, they see the defeat of, of their military. Those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. Well, this just created a panic in the cities. They just, in, in mass, abandoned the, the Jewish cities. And then the Philistines came in them and dwelt in them. And so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain. Uh, that they found Saul and his three sons killed on Mount Galboa. So they discover Saul's body, and they cut off Saul's head then as an evidence of death. They stripped off all of his armor, and they sent word throughout all of the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. So the word got out, we have finally killed Saul. Saul had been, had been defeating the, the Philistines, first under David and others, for 40 years. 
And now they have finally killed this king. And it was a, a time for great celebration. They took his armor and they, they uh, took it into the temple of, of uh, Ashtoreth. They put his armor, notice verse 10, in the temple of the Ashtoreth. And they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. In those days, as we've seen before, when people would go into battle... They viewed the battle as not just supremely something that was uh, an en- kind of an, a military engagement between the human beings on the field of, of battle, but that it was also reflected a battle between the gods of the two people. So when one army would, would prevail, then that was considered to be the fact that their god had prevailed over the defeated army's god. And so they take Saul's armor and they put it into the temple and they're basically presenting a tribute, uh, a part of the spoil to their god, giving him thanks for the victory over the god uh, of Israel. And that was their attitude. They took Saul's body, a uh, headless body, and they fastened it or pinned it to the wall uh, of Beth Shen. And so here he becomes a trophy of, of the Philistines, a trophy of his, his enemies. And then when the, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, in, and part of what the Philistines were doing, and, and it really gets the attention of the men of Jabesh Gilead, when they would mutilate a body, they would take Saul's body and they pinned his body on the wall of a city. It was a way of mocking the other army and other people. Look what we can do to your king. Look what we can do to the highest person among your people. And there's nothing you can do to keep us from, from doing this. And so it was just another dig. We've defeated you in battle, but now we're also here uh, going to, you know, uh, do this in front of your face and there's nothing you can do about what we do to the body of your king. So the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, they heard what the Philistines had done to Saul and the mutilation and, and all. And all the valiant men arose and they traveled all night. They took the body of Saul, great risk to themselves, and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and they burned their bodies there, maybe because they were so mutilated. Unusual for Jews to burn bodies. And uh, so not, a, not against the law or anything, but unusual form. So maybe disease or mutilation or whatever, but they burned the bodies. And then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And they then fasted as a, a sign of their mourning for Saul uh, for seven uh, days. The... Um, the, the men of Jabesh Gilead, it, it's fascinating. You say, why in the world did, did they do this thing that they did for, for Saul here? You remember in all the way back, and I think it's uh, chapter uh, 11 of, of 1 Samuel, when Saul was first king and uh, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came and came to the city of Jabesh Gilead and said, uh, I'm going to conquer you and I'm going to defeat you, and I, and I want you to surrender to me, and, and I want as a condition of sparing your lives that you gouge out your right eye and bring them to me. That was the men of Jabesh Gilead. And Saul came on the scene. It was an affront to him. And God ro- gave him the strength. He rose up and he led the children of Israel to defeat 
of the Ammonites in a great, great uh, battle there. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead looked back 40 years past all that Saul had become. And they remembered what he once was. And they said, we owe him this. And they went and they recovered his body. And sometimes that's what happens. And we'll see a little more of it the next time in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1. But sometimes, and they were willing to do it, you overlook you know, the, um, some of the not-so-great things about a person's life uh, to find what can we celebrate about them, and uh, that's what they did. Sometimes today, you know, when, when I'll officiate a funeral uh, service or a memorial service, because the culture has changed so much, it's become a lot more base, it's become a lot less polite, and so things that people just used to know um, 20 years ago or 40 years ago, they don't know anymore. And so sometimes you have to explain to people in that section of the service when you get up and you talk about the dead that you're delivering a eulogy. And a eulogy means to speak well of. And at a, at a funeral service, if you can't say something good about them, it's not the time to, to run them down over all the things that you could run them down over. And so here is the men of Jabesh Gilead. They do something wonderful here. And, and uh, even mourning for seven days, though Saul really didn't deserve it. The Lord had blessed Saul with everything necessary to be one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel, to be one of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament. And he came from a good family, he was called by God. He was anointed by God. God gave him a new heart. God filled him with the Holy Spirit. God touched men's hearts to come alongside him and be a support to him. He was very, very humble. He was very attractive, very gracious, very kind when he started out. And yet his whole life ends up a complete failure. And all of it was undone for a simple reason. A deliberate, willful lifestyle of disobedience to God's Word. And I know I'm holding you a little bit over here, but I want to make this point, not to what you got left over, but it's an important point. Saul lived his whole life under the idea that partial obedience to God is obedience. And he deceived himself into thinking that was good enough for God. God told him, kill the Amalekites. He thought partial obedience was okay because he didn't know an Amalekite would come and kill him one day. It's true of all sin that God calls us. The Bible says that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not hard. They're not limiting. They're freeing. They are protections in our life. But in his mind, God's words and his commandments were negotiable. You obey what you feel like obeying, what's easy to obey, what's harder to obey and you don't want to obey. You just don't do it. Now you tell me how prevalent that attitude is, even among God's people today. When push comes to shove and it costs you something to obey his word. And every time God sent someone to Saul to confront him concerning his partial obedience, which is disobedience, he always responded with an excuse. He protected his disobedience, not realizing it was working to his destruction. And it always kept him, as we've seen before, one step away from repentance. 
And the result of it was he ended up becoming a trophy of his enemy, hung up on a wall in Bet Shan. And I'll tell you, the same thing is true of every single one of our lives here today. If any of us are living a Christian life or a so-called Christian life with the idea that partial obedience is okay with God, that it actually represents obedience, you will become a trophy of the devil. You can write it in the back of your Bible tonight. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. We have an enemy who wants to make a trophy of us more than the Philistines ever wanted to make a trophy of Saul. He's called the devil. A life of simple obedience to God's Word leads to greatness in this life and in the kingdom of God. Greatness in God's calling upon our lives. And it keeps us in a safe place in life. Holiness, obedience puts us on a path that's safe and it's clean and it's holy and it's wonderful. And so as we leave tonight and we go all of our different directions, if there's any of us that are in that partial obedience place, I beg you, I've seen, I've seen so much, you've seen so much, it always turns out the same way. The crash and burn is coming. The tragedy where everybody stops and says, He began so well. She began so well. It was so amazing how God was using them. The potential that they had. All of these things. And now this. It happens every day. Even today. And so, not all the lessons that we learn in the Scriptures are lessons from people doing right. Many of the lessons are learning from those who do wrong. And we look and say, I never want to be there. I want to learn the lesson from their life so I don't have to learn it firsthand myself. Saul is one of those people. Let's stand together. The worship team will come forward and we'll close up in prayer.